Hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, as we are continuing our study through Romans, we are now at Romans 12, and the idea is the, the art of being unordinary. And I have to admit, we're coming to an interesting part in our study in Romans because up to this point, we've talked about a lot of familiar passages. Uh, a lot of the verses, a lot of the paragraphs we've gone through here in our study of Romans, most of you have memorized. All right? You have some of those there. You, you know some of them. But then we just did last week, 9 through 11, and let's be honest, a lot of people, we don't talk about 9 through 11. As a matter of fact, I went to a workshop uh, when I first became a teacher at Salem. We had to go to these conferences, and one of the workshops was a, a person who was going to go through the book of Romans, and I thought, sounds awesome. I'm going to do that. Uh, who cares about being a better teacher? I want to learn about Romans. No, I'm just kidding. But I went to the study, and the man went through a great, I mean, the first nine workshops were him, or sorry, eight workshops were him just unpacking Romans in such a beautiful way. He was looking at nerdy things like I like to look at, history, the Greek language, all of that. And so I was excited about coming after lunch and looking at how he was going to tackle Romans 9 through 11. When I walked into the workshop, he says, now, Romans 9 through 11 is in a debatable passages. People like to have this opinion or that opinion. I don't want to get into that, so we're just going to go right to chapter 12. And I immediately was just like, dude, are you kidding me? I've been with, you had me for eight chapters, and you just left me here. Because to be honest with you, I really don't care what you have to say about chapter 12 if you can't understand chapter 9 through 11. Because in 9 through 11, as we looked at last week, we saw how God is not finished with His people Israel, and He has manifold promises He's made to them. And then we get to Romans 12 where we start with a living sacrifice. Now, here's what I want to do. I have to be honest. Romans 12 through 1 and 2, this sermon is going to be a little hard. Here's why. Because most of us have it memorized. We have heard many a sermon, a Bible lesson, a youth group lesson, a devotion on Romans 12, 1 through 2. Let me ask with a show of hands, how many of you have already heard a sermon on Romans 12, 1 through 2? All right. I understand that. Some of you didn't raise your hand because you thought, I don't know what you thought I was asking you, but we've heard of this. And the tendency that I do, maybe it's not you, maybe you're better than me. I hope you are. But the tendency is if I get to a passage that's got a lot of notes written in my Bible from other sermons, is to kind of listen, but not. You ever been there? Here's what I'm asking you to do. Literally, let's listen today and see if there's something brand new that we can learn from this. Because here's what I find out. My arrogance gets in the way of God speaking to me through His Word. So let's avoid that today, and let's dig into Romans chapter 12. In all of Paul's letters, Paul has a habit of telling us what we should believe first, and then sharing with us how we are to live out our lives based on that belief, all right? There's big words for this, all right? One is orthodoxy, and then there's orthopraxy. I got something else. I'd rather say this. Paul gave us the what to believe part in Romans 1 through 11. In chapters 12 through 15, he's going to give us the how to behave part, all right? So we've already done the what to believe part, and now we're going to get into the what, what to or how to behave part. In Romans, in that first part, in that what to believe part, he's already told us some amazing things. And he's told us in, his, in this book, in this word so far, of what we need to believe, all right? Here's what he's told us. He's told us that by nature, we all stand guilty before God regardless of our upbringing or our religious heritage, whether you got saved when you were fresh out of the nursery or whether you got saved on the way in today. We all stand before God guilty regardless of that. 
And then we learn that by grace we're declared to be righteous through our faith in Christ. Meaning that we who trust to be true that Jesus is who He says He is, that He's God, and He did what the Bible says He did, that He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again, when we put our faith in that, we are declared to be righteous even though we're not. We've also learned in this already not yet life, we're going to experience suffering in this present evil age. All of Romans 8 told us that. You guys were happy to get out of Romans 8 because it was all about suffering in this present life. We also learned that we can stand in hope of the coming day when Christ returns to set all things right. And we can have that confidence that all things what we experience in this life will work to His glory and our ultimate good. That's what Paul has taught us all through Romans 1 through 11. And from this launching pad, he's now going to set his attention on the various ways that we can live out this new standing before God in our lives. So we're getting into the, what the, belief, the how to behave part of Romans. So, and for this look in this final part of Romans, we've chosen this series titled Unordinary. I think unordinary really fits this word. The word unordinary simply means not ordinary. Didn't have to do much research on that one pretty honest. However, there's a little bit more to it. It means being out of the ordinary, unusual, extraordinary, all right? Or I'm going to use the theology of my favorite children's cartoon, The Amazing World of Gumball. Did I lose anybody? Where's anybody, any Gumball fans? Thank you. I knew you wouldn't let me down. There's a song that they sing in the amazing world of gumball, where they try to tell everybody that everybody is weird like you and me. Everybody's weird like you and me. I thought about taking some time to talk about how weird I am, but I figure some of you know me. And you're like, you forgot one. Because we're all weird. But for some reason, that weirdness, we don't want to embrace it. We want to be like everybody else. I find that's true as I work with students. I find that's true as I work with people. We want to be like everybody else. Sometimes we're afraid of saying what we want to say because we're afraid of how it will be received. And it's not that it's sinful. It's just that we don't want to ruffle feathers or we don't want to bother someone or we don't want to hurt someone where we don't want to make them feel bad. And sometimes that's a part of it. Sometimes it's doing what everybody else is doing. You may think, oh, I don't do that. Look at your old yearbook. If you ha- did you, some of you, maybe you had yearbooks. I don't know. I almost made a papyrus joke. I won't. Three of you got it. Okay. But if you look at your old yearbook, how you used to style your hair, if you had some, or how you used to dress, your kids look at that and go, that's weird. Mom, what were you thinking? You're like, it was the 80s. Bon Jovi was popular. Some of you guys, you're like, it'll never happen. Your kids are going to look at your yearbook and go, Mom, what were you thinking? What's that? Why did everybody take videos of their forehead? What was that all about? Okay, what's that? I don't get it. See, we're all going to be, we're all a little weird. And what Paul is saying in this passage is, listen, I don't want you to just embrace your weirdness. I, I want you to understand that that's what you're called to be. You're called to be unordinary. And the reason why I chose this word was because this is what defines what God has always called his people to be. When, this is a neat thing. When God formed the nation of Israel, when they were in the wilderness and they were setting up the tabernacle, He gave them specific ways to set up the tabernacle. 
He actually told them, when you set the tabernacle up, I want it in such a way where everybody going into the tabernacle is going west. Now, we read that in our Bibles and go, why? It's really neat. All the other religions of the, in that time of the people around Israel worship facing east. So, so God says, no, I want you to do things differently. I want you to face west, and that's going to look weird to everybody around you. It's going to look unordinary. And then we see that's what Jesus called his disciples to be when he told them the greatest. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the servant of all. That's unordinary. You see, brothers and sisters, God has always wanted for his people to be different from our culture. Now, when you hear that word, it may trigger some preconceived notion of what difference looks like. For me, when I started studying this and looking into this, the first thing that popped in my head was my pre-Jesus days of growing up in a church that emphasized personal attire over personal holiness. That's what it was about. It was the idea was to look different from everyone else by the means of a haircut. Some of you are giggling because my hair's gone. I personally believe this is because I grew up in, in that kind of school that said you got to have your hair cut a certain way, and it's, my hair just finally said, if that's how you're going to treat me, I'm leaving. <laughs> you see, the idea was to look different from a haircut, a hair color, a style of dress, a Bible version, whatever. But instead of letting our preconceived notions define unordinary for us, let's let God do that through His Word. And, and that's what He's going to do here. Now, I believe this word unordinary is going to encapsulate everything Paul is going to say in chapter 12 through 15. Now, spoiler, I'm going to go ahead and give you what we're going to be talking about. In chapter 12, after starting next week, we're going to see how we are called to be unordinary in our actions with one another. In chapter 13, Paul's going to show us how we're supposed to respond to the government that's unordinary. In chapter 14, he's going to see how we're to break from our natural, ordinary ways of dealing with those who disagree with us on spiritual or even church matters, seeking to put their good over our desires. And then in chapter 15, Paul's going to wrap it all up by showing us the example found in Jesus, the most unordinary person who's ever walked this planet. And that's really the point, isn't it? I mean, to be like Jesus. You see, the Christian life is not about anything other than believers in Christ becoming more and more like Christ in all they think and do. That's it. And we would all agree with this statement. Hopefully, you would all agree this is what the Christian life is. But the question becomes how? How can believers do this? How can a believer in Jesus become more and more like him? How can we here today become unordinary? Now, we're going to start by looking at these two verses in this new how to behave section, all right? Now, I'm going to put it on the screen, but it's there in your Bibles, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this opportunity to teach this well-known passage. Father, help me to get out of my preconceived notions of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Father, I pray that for my friends here today, for all of us, 
Lord, that we would always remember the truths of your word. If I say anything today that's just merely my opinion, let it be forever forgotten. I pray, Father, that the people here would forget who preached this message, but that they would always remember the truths of your word taught. And may it change us more like your son Jesus every day. And we pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. You see, in this well-known passage, Paul is laying exactly, he's laying it out exactly what it means to take all we've learned from 1 through 11 and now let it affect our life on a deep level. And first, Paul begins with an appeal. He gives an appeal. He even says it in the passage, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. The verb Paul uses here, translated by your ESV as appeal, it it actually conveys a a personal request with more of a, a weighty authority, all right? This might be, your dad may have done this conversation, okay? I'm not, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you that kind of appeal. I'm not saying it'd be good for you to do this, all right? I need you to do this. My dad would start this way, hey, bud, don't you think it'd be a good idea if you cleaned your room? Now, I could respond with, no. And then that appeal becomes different. It becomes a godly exhortation. And if I deny that, it becomes ungodly, all right? He's saying, you should do this. It's good. You, you want to do this. But look at this. This appeal that Paul uses has the mercies of God as its basis. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word mercies rather than, than mercy. Some translations actually try to fix the grammar and go, uh, you mean mercy of God, Paul? But actually, Paul means mercies of God because mercies is a Hebrew term. It's a Hebraism that it has the idea of for the countless and various expressions of God's mercy, meaning that God has multifaceted mercies, not just mercy. And Paul has just spent 11 chapters telling us all what these mercies are about, about His faithful love, His said for us that we've talked about in the past few weeks. And now he's making this appeal on the foundation that God has displayed mind-blowing and multifaceted mercy to us. But then we have the nature of his appeal. He gives the nature of his appeal in the next one. And what's important to know in this is this is an ethical appeal, an ethical appeal. This appeal is about behavior, but it's more than behavior management, all right? It's more than that. It's getting to the heart of the issue, all right? Our Marywood staff, you dealt with some students this week, right? What age group did you have? Juniors, okay? Now, that got lost on the majority of our congregation. What's our, what's our year? What, what grade? Sixth through eighth. Did you even know what you were doing this week? All right, four through six? Okay, all right? So, when I, say, when I say fourth grade through sixth grade, anybody want to sigh deeply? You haven't dealt with fourth through sixth grade before then, have you? Okay? That's an interesting group. They're great kids. But listen, you probably had some behavior issues, my guess. You might have had to look at a student and go, listen, we can't do that. And the response is, why? Why? All right? And you want to respond with, because I said so, get back in line. But Terry probably wants you to be more loving. So you're trying to convince this person that what they did needs to be done differently. Listen, here's the trick. Behavior management is is more than just doing the right thing. Because I don't know about you, 
but we can raise a generation of hypocrites, teach them to do the right thing, but they don't want to. You, you understand? Does that make sense? You see, this passage here is not about behavior management. Just do the right thing and everything's good. It's about something from the heart. Because Paul's not suggesting 12 steps to becoming a better you or living your best life now through daily change. He's not saying that. He's demanding radical change. Look at the words. A sacrifice. What's involved in sacrifice? Death. But he says, no, I want a living sacrifice. I want it to be a holy sacrifice. I want it to be a sacrifice that pleases God. This is a dedication of the whole person, physical, emotional, and spiritual, intellectual, to the living for the glory and honor of God over any other reason. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. But then he gives the logic of his appeal. It's really neat. He actually uses the word. Paul's ethical appeal is to be a living sacrifice, and it's, to be, it's a logical argument, meaning that it's the understandable result of our being the recipients of God's multifaceted mercies. It just makes sense is what Paul is saying. As a matter of fact, some of your older translations say the phrase, it's your reasonable service. It means it makes sense. And the ESV renders this as spiritual worship. The word there means uh, to be true or to real nature pertaining to being genuine, spiritual, reasonable, sensible, pertaining to mind and heart. We went ahead, guys. Let me go back. All right. Now, thus Paul, in this worship, is he's saying it's reasonable or rational, the appropriate response to the grace of God. Now, it could be that. It could be just a logical response to your coming to faith in Christ. But it could also be the spiritual and being the sense that's from the heart instead of being merely external or shallow. What Paul is saying is your worship, it's logical to give yourself as a living sacrifice, and it's the way we truly honor God. I really believe that, that both of these meanings is what Paul means. His goal is to show that our genuine worship, our real worship, is more than what occurs here on Sunday. If you showed up for worship today, you got it wrong. We met to corporately worship together, to encourage one another, to speak truths to one another, to comfort one another, to love one another. Let me go off on a tangent. It's not on the script. We're not here for our own preferential treatments. We're here to love each other. We're here to cross the, the line from this area to go over that area. Can I say this phrase? I've heard people go, where, where, do you guys know this person? Yeah, where's he set? Oh, he's on the left side. He's a left-sider? Is that a term we're using now? He's a right-side. And what, are you going stage left, stage right? How confusing is that? Oh, yeah, he sets over there. She sets over there. Have you talked to her yet? No, nah, I just haven't made it my way over there. I can get a tape measure out and wonder what's keeping you. Just walk over. Well, they sit in the back. I sit in the front. It's not a big space. Let's talk to one another. I've heard of people introducing themselves to people, and they've been members here for like three years. I haven't met you yet. Really? I'm Pastor Rick. I, I, I work here. Guys, we have to get out of that. We have to get out of the fact that we come to church to get something. No, it's about coming together to give to each other. I think of the church as like a boat tied on the dock. 
Think of it this way. We're out all week out in the ocean. We're getting hit by waves all the time, aren't we? We need to come back to dock and get tied to the dock, and that's what that is. That's what church is. It's us being around each other, loving one another, being encouraged by one another. We've got to do it. We've got to. You see, church is not about worship. It's not about coming together and singing. It's more than that. Our worship is to be our Christian ethics, our Christian duties that Paul is going to flesh out for the rest of this book. True worship is not something we perform. It's something that should come naturally to us, like breathing in and out. And it's only natural to us because of what he's done for us. Thomas Erskine of Linlothen, I just picked the most oldest person's name I could find. He said this, in the New Testament, religion is, in the New Testament, religion is grace. I like this. And ethics is gratitude. Meaning, I'm doing the things for the Lord, not because I'm trying to earn something, but rather to show I'm thankful for what I've earned. Or the illustration I use, I hate washing dishes in our home. You, if you're like, I love that. Okay, you're a monster. I don't understand why you'd like that. But I do them because my wife doesn't like to do them but I'm not doing them to earn her love and favor. I hopefully already have that. I'm doing it to show I'm thankful for her love and favor. You see that? We operate out of gratitude. It's not we got to, it's a get to. It's a very important, a very important vowel change when it comes to serving the Lord. We don't got to serve Him, we get to. We get to. And this type of worship is reasonable or it's logical and rational as we see the mercies of God that was shown to us. Another old guy, Epictetus, says this, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan, I was what is proper to a swan. But in fact, I'm logikos, a rational being. Because I'm rational, I've got to praise God. That's what he says. That's a great line. He says, look, because I'm a rational being, I have to praise God. It's just logical to do so. You see, in essence, Paul's appeal here is a call to those who have been given the manifold mercies of God to live out these mercies by offering all that they are to God. And then Paul explains the means of his appeal in chapter 12, verse 2. Paul explains how his audience can become these living, holy, and pleasing to God sacrifices. And he does it through some statements. Look what he says first. He says first, do not be conformed to this world. And that word world carries the idea of the beliefs, the philosophies, the methodologies, the strategies of the fallen world we live in, the way the world works, the way the culture does things. We'll use the word the culture from this point. As a matter of fact, the actual Greek word there, it says, don't be conformed to this age, the way this world thinks right now. And what this, don't let the world tell you what's important. J.B. Phillips translates this verse this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world do that. And that can happen. It can happen in a lot of different ways. But I think it, instead of it listing out a, a, a group of behaviors that we should avoid or that we should take part in, I think it's best to come in and say, listen, the mindset of the living sacrifice says, what the world is telling me is important, I've got to deny and say it's not. I've just got to say it's not important. So then I have to find out what is important. And that takes us to the next verse where he says, be transformed, meaning to change or transform the essential nature of something. It's the same word used of the transfiguration of Jesus when he's in front of his disciples. 
And what's neat about this is this command is in a cool, ver- a cool tense. It's a present passive tense, meaning it should be literally keep on being transformed. Keep on being transformed. I mean, it's continual. It indicates that this transformation into more and more, being more and more like Jesus, does not have a finish line or an end goal in this life. It's to be constant and consistent in our daily transformation into the image of Jesus until He returns. That's what it's supposed to be like. Keep on being transformed. Why do you have to keep on being transformed? Because as you get exposed to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you see things in there that need to get fixed. That's what He's talking about. And we do this by the renewal of our mind. The renewal of our mind. And this is how that daily transformation into Christ-likeness occurs. This is how we do it. John MacArthur clarifies it this way. He says, the renewed mind is one saturated with or controlled by the Word of God. It's saturated with, controlled by the Word of God. This means that the only way possible is as the Spirit changes our thinking through consistent study and contemplation of the Word of God. Or, as we, I like to say, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's how the Spirit has chosen to work here. We see this in verses all throughout, the Old Te- throughout Scripture. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. As the word of God changes us. Then in the New Testament, we see in, in Colossians, Paul writes, Him we proclaim talking about Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then in my favorite passage, I love to preach this at weddings, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 to 27, that Jesus might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word so that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters, the living sacrifice is only possible as we allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. So we have to spend time in His Word. We have to make time. And we live in an age where it's so easy to do this. You all have those weapons of mass distraction in your pockets, your cell phones, and there's every version on the planet on you version. And it'll even set an alarm to tell you, hey, it's time to spend time in God's Word. And I have to say, I haven't had to do that. I'm not a big fan of using my phone as my Bible because I get emails constantly. Like, some of you guys are up way too early. I'm up early. I'm, t- I'm just trying to beat my kids up to have some time. I get up and I start reading God's Word and there's an email. I'm like, get some sleep. 
So I've set my alarm for it. It says, get up, spend time with the Lord. It's what it says in the alarm. So that it's hard to hit snooze on an appointment with Jesus. So set the alarm. Get up and spend time with God in His Word. And we have all these different great tools at our disposal. There's no reason why we shouldn't be spending time with God's Word. The sacrifice is also characterized as one that's able to discern the will of God. Able to discern the will of God. You see, the word discern or approve carries the idea of gladly recognizing the worth of something or seeing it as worthwhile. And Paul's explaining that as the believer in Christ engages in this transformation into the image of Christ more and more through study and immersing him or herself in God's Word, his or her recognition and understanding of God's desires becomes clearer. That's a big deal here. It becomes clearer. In other words, as we grow more and more like Jesus through God's Word, His desires become our desires. His desires become our desires. And it's important because with the competing voices in our culture telling you what you are telling you what's important, they're vying for your attention. It's vital. It's so important that we as believers are able to focus our attention on what truly matters. Now, in the rest of our time today, I want to talk about this last idea. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? Because that's the passage that just came up. It said, you'll be able to discern what the will of God is. Did you notice that? It said, you'll be able to discern what the will of God is. And that's a question that a lot of people ask. Young people ask it all the time. I wish I knew what God's will is for me. I wish I knew what God's will is for me. Is it individual? Is it global? Now, in our time remaining, I want to suggest something unordinary about the will of God, okay? Usually when we speak of God's will for ourselves or others, we tend to think in terms of future plans. What should I do when I graduate? What should I do when I get my first job? Where, where should I work? What career path should I do? Here's one, young people. Who should I marry? That's a will of God thing. I remember this was a phrase used when I was at Piedmont Bible College for a while. I remember a friend of mine, he, she had a young, a young man come up to her and say, listen, I've been praying, and I think it's God's will that we start dating. Now listen, you might think, that's kind of creepy, but listen to his game here. What happens if she says no? She's out of the will of God. Smooth move, all right? Now, her response was, I think if it was God's will, He'd let me know too. His response is, well, if you want to be out of God's will, that's on you. And then you had people breaking up over God's will. That was another favorite. You didn't want to, you didn't want to go and tell Him, it's, it's not really me, it's you. It's everything about this, you. So, so would you, I just don't think it's the will of God that we keep dating. I'm going to throw God under the bus instead of me. I want to still be friends. You and Jesus can figure your stuff out, but I want to still be friends. And listen, sometimes that's the will. Of, we talk about the will of God that way. We talk about where should I go? Uh, should I serve Him somewhere? What should I do? Now, listen, don't misunderstand me. I believe that those things are very important, 
and that we should be carefully consider all these things before we make decisions. But hear me on this one. When the Bible speaks about the will of God regarding us, it's not about doing something. It's not about a future. It's about being someone. It's about being someone. The will of God is not about something we have to do. It's about something we have to be. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where he says unequivocally, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you is for you to be set apart, more like Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you, that the will of God for me is now to be thankful in all circumstances. And when I'm complaining, what am I doing? Or what am I? I'm out of the will of God. Here's one, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, the will of God is not so much about my career path. It's about me right now on the path. Friends, seeking the will of God for our lives is not about some far-off future plan or life goal. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to use our study of the Word of God to make us more like Jesus in all our conduct and interactions. It's the living sacrifice. And this living sacrifice is the believer in Christ being led by the Spirit of God in all their conduct. And then finally, in chapter 12, verse 2, he describes this Holy Spirit-led conduct as good, pleasing, and perfect. You see, Paul states that the Spirit-led conduct is good, that which works to the benefit of someone. That's what the word good means. If we say, if that food is good for you, it means it works, it's good for your benefit. It, it helps you, okay? Thus, this spirit-led conduct leads to spiritual, ethical, and moral growth in the life of the believer. But hold on for a minute. As we pursue that Christ-likeness, it's going to change us, but it's also going to change all of our relationships. We'll put others over ourselves, We'll put their needs over our wants. We'll put their feelings over what we feel. Here's the one that gets me. This one was hard to think about. As I submit to the Spirit, His teaching me through His Word and making me more like Jesus, I will be willing to admit my mistakes and faults to those I have wronged. And instead of seeking vindication for what I did, I'll seek forgiveness and restoration where I would ordinarily seek to be proven right in why I did that or why I wrongly treated somebody else. You see, here's what we ordinarily do. Someone offends us. We go to someone else. Did you believe they said that to me? You're with me, right? You agree with me, right? We're both agreement. That person's wrong, right? Okay. And next thing you know, you got a team against another person. When the most unordinary thing to do is to walk across the room and say, listen, that hurt. And I love you. 
but I need you to let me, I need to let you know that hurt because I want to forget, I want to forgive and I want restoration and I don't want this on me. It also means, listen, I realize I hurt you when I said that. I hurt you when I did that. And I need you to forgive me. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. You don't have to forgive me, but I need to ask for it because it was wrong. That's unordinary. And that's what we're called to do as a church. Because Jesus says that the world may know that God sent me by their love for one another. Ultimately, our growth into Christ's likeness serves the good of others as much, if not more, than our own good. Next, Paul defines this spirit-led conduct as pleasing. And it must be said, ultimately, we're not talking about pleasing to ourselves, it's, it's pleasing to God. Choosing spirit-led, God-word, saturated character puts you on the outs with the ordinary way our culture works. I wish it wasn't true. Young people, I wish I could tell you that if you choose this way, I'm going to be different than the world. If you choose that, I wish I could tell you that you're going to be popular among your peers. But it may not be true. You may not get that phone call on Friday and Saturday night when everybody's doing stuff because you, they don't want to bring you because you're choosing to live that spirit-led life is causing them guilt. It may put you on the outs with the way other people ordinarily do things. Your family may go, hey, why are you making that decision? Why are you going to do that when you could use your talents here and make lots more money? Why are you going to go to that church? Go to, this church is a whole lot more fun. Why are you going to give up your summers to work with fourth through sixth graders at a camp where there's air conditioning, praise the Lord, but why are you going to give up your life on the mission field when you could use your gifts here? Why? It's going to look weird. But listen, it's not about pleasing others. It's not even about pleasing ourselves. It's about pleasing our great God who has saved us by His manifold mercies. And finally, this will of God is described as, as perfect, meaning that there's no better option by far than the will of God. Beloved, I, I want to leave this one statement to you. And it's God's will for each believer in Christ is for their character to be molded into the image of Christ, manifested by Holy Spirit-led conduct that is out of the ordinary of our normal behavior. Friends, God's will for us is to be unordinary. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like today, but may I make a statement? My study of this has done some things to me this week where there have been people I've had to go to and get things right with. And I'm asking the same thing right now. You may be harboring feelings towards people. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a member here. Maybe it's someone in the building right now. I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to urge you with that same authority Paul has. Do not waste any more time in getting that right especially if it's a brother or sister in this building. Do not wait. Don't wait. I'll catch them this week. You won't. 
because you'll go out of here and you'll talk yourself out of it. But if the Holy Spirit has opened your heart to show you something you need to get right with that person, that's what you need to do. Ask them to come. Hey, come over here for a minute. Let's chat. What an amazing thought would it be if at the end of this service, people got right with each other. Maybe it's been years of drama built up, and you need to get it right. But please, don't let this moment pass. For some of you in the room, you may not know what this is about because you've never put your faith in Christ. You've never trusted to be true, that Jesus is who he says he is, he's God, and that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again. Maybe it's a church attendance. Maybe it's a a grew-up Christian. Whatever you're holding on to, thinking that you're right with God, Listen, if you have not put your faith in Christ in the way we've described it today, maybe that's what you need to do. And let the Holy Spirit change you from the inside out that way. But brothers and sisters, please don't wait. Don't let this be another in the long list of Romans 12, one and two passages that you listen to and nothing happened. Let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for how your word exposes us. Lord, it lays us bare and open. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, I pray in my own life that you would show me things I don't even know. There's probably things in my heart right now, ways I've hurt someone or, or things I'm holding on to, sin I don't even realize yet because I've been, I'm so good at covering it. God, please take your word and your spirit and expose those things to me that I may get them right with someone I've offended, but ultimately get them right with you. Father, I pray for my friends here today. It's my prayer that as you've spoken to us through your word, You've shown us what it means to be a living sacrifice that is holy, acceptable, pleasing to you. Father, I pray that we would do whatever it takes to get things right. Father, demolish our pride. Don't let us leave thinking we're all good. God, please let the Holy Spirit have free reign over our hearts. Let us allow him to have that free reign. God, make us more like Jesus so that we can be a a church that reflects Jesus in every aspect so that when people think of this church, they don't think of a building, they don't think of amazing ministries, they don't think of eloquence. What they think of is Jesus is magnified in that building. And Jesus is magnified as those people leave that building. May people who interact with people who are part of Salem leave and think, that's a person who's like Jesus. But God, it won't happen unless we're willing to humble ourselves. So I pray, humble us. Make us more like your son. And we pray this in the name that is above every name. Amen.